Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It seems to be, does this seven times, that you could read the words and still not hear what he's saying. There's a, there's a perception he's praying you'll have. I hope you know what I'm saying. Can you hear what the Spirit is saying? This is the church that... Uh, we would simply call it the dead church. But it had a reputation, which was obviously good. It was in a wealthy city, a lot of prosperity. It's a city that's interesting in history. Only two times in history was it ever conquered and entered into. It was done that way by Cyrus, and it was done that way by Antiochus. What's interesting about the city is it was seen to be impregnable. It was up on the uh, cliffs, and it was just thought to be, uh, you can't invade it. It's, you can't get into it. But twice, those on duty went to sleep and ignored danger, even when there was a surrounding army, because they said, the place is impregnable. You can't get in here. But twice, while the guards slept, the city was conquered. They found a way to get up to it, and while the city was asleep and the guards were asleep, they conquered the city. So it had a historical bad reputation of being cocky, of seemingly to be impregnable, and yet was conquered because everybody went to sleep on duty. And so he talks to this historic city with the church in it, and he says, don't make the mistakes in the church that the city has made. Go to sleep when you ought to be on duty. Be alert to your, your duties. Be alert. And he said, uh, you've got a reputation, but you don't live up to it. Let's go through here. The compliment, Christ had none. He gave no compliment to this church. The complaints, number one, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. What do you think their reputation would have been? Uh, maybe you're a big church. Uh, man, it's an on-fire church. I don't know what the reputation was. Uh, maybe a wealthy church. Uh, uh, in America, you're a great church if you've got buildings, bodies, and bucks. If you've got those three, if you've got money, if you've got buildings, and if you've got a lot of people, you're known for, man, you must be the greatest thing in town. Could you be a large church with huge facilities and lots of money and still be considered dead? Who, who knows what their actual, but he says, you're living on your name. You, you seem to be impressed with whatever you have, but he said, I find you dead. And they became like Samson of old. Samson did not know that the Lord had departed from him. 
I read a Spurgeon years, I read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon years ago who said you couldn't lose your salvation. And it was scary what he said. And he was talking to preachers. But you can lose the anointing of God. You can lose the blessing of God that uses you. And here like Samson of old, when they cut his hair and he awakened and Delilah had already cut his hair and he woke up and he did not realize his strength was gone. He told his secret. My strength is in my hair. I'm never to cut my hair. She got him to go to sleep. Yeah, he was a he-man with she problems. He, he always loved women, and he always sinned with them. And he's sinning here, has his strength cut off, and he wakes up as before. He's going to go out and rescue. And he, he did not know you don't have any strength. You gave it all up lying in the lap of Delilah. And so here's a church. They don't realize they've lost something. The counsel of Jesus, water that which is alive. I just use as an illustration, but he says, watch, strengthen what is good. There is something still going on that's good in that church. Strengthen it. Strengthen it. Maybe some prayer meetings, maybe some Bible studies, some devout believers in the church that weren't resting on their laurels, who had not gone to sleep. Two, remember what you have received and heard. Remember that, that you received the Word of God. You were led to Christ. Don't forget where you've been. Don't forget what you've heard. I'm amazed at how quick truth can be forgotten. I was uh, called to do the funeral of a couple that, grew up in this church, uh, and uh, just grew up in a youth group, grew up, was around here a long time. By the time I was trying to make the funeral arrangements with the widow, she and her husband had been out of church for uh, five, seven, eight years. They got hurt in a church. So the best thing to do is backslide and never go back. That's what they did. And when I'm making funeral arrangements, helping her, she had her family there. She said, tell them about the resurrection and about the rapture. I forgot it all. I don't remember. And she only was in this church for 15 years. And she wanted me to explain to her children what happens at the resurrection? What happens after you die? I don't know. I don't remember any of it anymore. You can't forget that. Yes, she did. You can forget truth. Oh, we don't pass it on to our kids. We don't want to bore them with this stuff. We don't want to pass. Well, what are they? They're passing on Pokemon. They're passing on all this. They're passing on all kinds of stuff. Oh, I've got to see this, I've got to see this, I've got to see this. Hey, are you passing on? They'll quickly forget, and you will forget if you don't keep talking it, sharing it, reading the Word. That's why you got to be reading the Bible, because the devil is always snatching truth out of our mind. So he says, remember, remember, remember. And he tells them to do that. Awake from your spiritual slumber. Number three, awake. So they were a sleepy church and sleeping on truth, obviously. And he says, you need to wake up. 
you you got to, and this scares me about any church. Man, your reputation may not be the reality. You may have a better name than what you really are. Uh, I've had this happen uh, several times in my life. I'll have people that either have gone to this church before or have known me at different periods of my life, and they'll say, oh, my lands, what a man of prayer. We knew you to be. And here I hadn't prayed for three days. They'll always say it seemed like when I'm in a dry spell. Oh, pastor, what a man of prayer. Prayer, when was the last time I did that? Oh, yeah, three days ago. Have you ever had someone give you a compliment and you said, boy, I wish that was true? <laughs> you know, man, I, at least they're deceived. I had a woman come up one time. She said, that's the greatest sermon I ever heard. I said, I pray your deception will increase. <laughs> man, I'm not going to tell you any different. Good, good. See, don't, don't rest on reputation. Reputation is what you want to look like. It makes you look good. Reputation is what you are in the light. Character is what you are in the dark. What are you really? And so he's saying, I could see through you, and I know you've got a better name than you've got a better life. And don't fall in love with your reputation. Some people are a legend between their ears, but they're really not that impressive in reality. So it's scary. I don't know what the reputation of Valley is. I wonder what they say about us. I tell you, I've heard good and bad, and I can't hardly believe either one. I guess they say, we're still seeking God. We're still desperate for God. We're still a bunch of sinners making our way to heaven, and we're not uh, sold on ourselves as much as we're sold on Christ. That's what I want to be known for. I'm sold on Christ, and the rest of us, he's patiently teaching us to follow. What about you? Well, he goes on to the church that you love the most, Philadelphia. Uh, he has no complaints about this church. This is the church I've always wanted to pastor. Uh, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, 
and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Um, no complaints, really, in our outlining, got mixed up on the B. It ought to really be, all this ought to be the compliment. There's no complaints. Uh, and he says to them, this is what I know about you. These are his compliments. I know your deeds. That is interesting. Not your talk. I know how you act. I know what you do. When we stand before God, he's not going to judge all of our unkept promises and all the talk. Even that, according to Jesus, every vain word we say will be brought up against us when we stand before, even our speech. But ideally, your speech becomes a part of your words, what you say, what you do. You know, it's like this morning. God knows everybody that gave an offering. God knows what you did. God knows you're here. He knows every wonderful thing. And thank God, every bad thing, you can confess it and get it covered by the blood of Christ and go on. But I know your works. Two, he says, I know that you have little strength. What a, it seems weird if that's a compliment. And the word little strength, it's this Greek word, dunamis. And, and the word is translated dynamic. In, uh, we'll bring it over to English. And it means uh, uh, explode, it was used of dynamite, explosive power. But it meant dynamic. And it says, there's nothing dynamic that I see at Philadelphia. Which commentator says, they must not have been a large church. They must not have been a wealth. There was nothing impressive about this church to anybody but Jesus. Have you ever gone to a non-impressive church besides Valley? Anybody here ever grow up in small churches? Yeah. I grew up in small churches. This is the biggest thing I've ever been a part of. I preached in some large churches, but I'm just a guest. I wasn't the pastor. I grew up, if a church was 200, that was just huge. Because I grew up in churches 50 to 70 people. And there's nothing dynamic. The building wasn't dynamic. The people weren't. There probably, when I grew up, there wasn't one person that graduated from college in the churches I went to. They were all blue collar. They were all uh, just ordinary kind of people. Nothing dynamic. And Jesus says, I know you've got little strength. There's nothing dynamic about you guys. We hardly know why anybody attends. You don't even have a great band. You don't have a great choir. You don't have air conditioning. I'm not impressed by it all anyway. But he says, not to put them down, he just simply says, I know you don't have great strength. But you've done two things that I'm impressed with. You've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. 
Two things. You are clinging to my word. You've kept it. Didn't say you read it. He said you kept it. You've obeyed it. You're doing my word. And you've not denied my name. And all the pressure in these churches was to call the emperor Lord. They had not denied Jesus Christ. He is Lord. They clung to Christ. They clung to the word. Now, he says something is very interesting here. The name of Jesus to this church is, tell this church that I hold the keys of David. Chapter 1, verse 18, I hold the keys of death, hell, and the grave. So I'm in charge of death, dying, and the afterlife. But here I've got the keys of David. What's this? Isaiah 22. There was a rascal by the name of Shimna, and he was being kicked out of office. He was a crook. He's being kicked out of office, and he had had the key of David. But now he's being kicked out, and they replace him with a guy by the name of Elakim. And he said, he shall have the key of David, the authority of the Davidic household to get into the treasury, to give rules, to give authority. And it says right in Isaiah 22, and whatever he opens will be open. Whatever he locks shall be locked. You don't have a chance, Philadelphia. The only thing that keeps you going is the key man is running your church, and the key man is Jesus. He's got the keys of David. I did a church planning conference with a bunch of Baptist preachers over in Napa sometime back, and they were all church planners. And I gave this message. I found out all you need to start a work for God is a weak man with the key man. Because he said, you're not dynamic. You don't have the strength. There's nothing flashy about you guys. This is the very verse that God spoke to me in May of 1971 in Fresno, California on East McKinley Street, Fresno. I was in seminary. I had a two-year-old daughter, and I had a pregnant wife that hadn't come home yet. I was doing Greek homework on a Thursday night, and I was headed for Visaya, California, to take a church. And God gave me this verse. Go back where you grew up and start a church. Leave your denomination because you're in trouble for teaching eternal security and election. Leave. Don't fight. Just leave, start over, and go back. And when I came to this area, I didn't know. I grew up in Richmond, not Pinot. I knew nothing about Pinot. My brother David lived there. I didn't know anything about it. And then I started looking, where would I meet if we met? And found the dance hall for $140 a month. I didn't have the money for it. I went and preached at a Pentecostal church in Concord. They gave me exactly $140. That's what I paid the rent with. When I went to get my apartment, the man asked me uh, uh, $170 a month, Jack Bezalone, Rodeo. And he says, uh, how much do you make? I said, I don't know. 
I'm starting a church. How long have you been there? Uh, we've not met yet. Uh, well, what will your monthly income be? Uh, I don't think I'll have a monthly income. After he cussed a little bit, his wife was there. said, quit cussing, Jack. Listen to him. And then the Richmond side of me started coming out. I said, now you listen here. <laughs> and I had my sister Hazel with me. I said, I'm never going to owe you a stinking dime because when I can't pay, she will. <laughs> That's right. That's what I did. I said, I don't have any money. He said, do you call? He said, do you consider me a damn fool? I said, no, I just need a place to live. I got a wife, going to have another baby. I need some place to live. And then his wife died. He said, you rent it to him, Jack. And then he said again, pardon, he said, well, I'm a damn fool. Five years later, he was putting on the roof on a brand new house for me in Rodale. Because after five years, I built a house in Rodale that I still live in. And when he was pulling that roof, he said, Preacher, God's brought you from a long ways. I said, yes, Mr. Landlord, and I don't owe you a dime. <laughs> Start it with nothing. No resources. Sold my car within three months because I couldn't pay $67 a month. I moved out of my apartment within three months and moved in with my brother David because I couldn't pay the rent. That's how this church started. And I would just keep saying, you told me I had no strength and I qualify, but you'd be the doorkeeper. You said you'd open the door. You'd keep it open. I'm counting on you, Jesus. That's all I've got. And all you need is weak people who are counting on the key man. He's got the key to the resources. He's the key to whether Valley has a ministry or not. It's not us up here. It's him. It's Christ. Christ will either build his church or there will be no church. Try all your methods. Try all. Make us preachers everything you want, good or bad. Get all your musicians you want. Christ alone could build his church. He's got the key. That's what I started this church on. I don't know about you, but I know how I came. That's the promise. That's why I've been here 45 years. I started to leave one time. My wife said, leave, leave, leave. I said, the voice that said come has not said leave. I'm listening for that voice. Everybody says, when's you going to retire? It's just a hint. They're saying, they were sick of you. When are you going to retire? <laughs> I'll retire as soon as I hear that voice again. But if you see me in the pulpit slobbering and drooling, I've got five more years. <laughs> so, so don't get in a hurry. Don't get in a hurry. If I, if I could hear him the first time, I think I could hear him the second time. Don't mess. I feel Richmond right now. Why, Richmond always brings up the ghetto in me. He counsels them. I'm going to uh, see that those who are representing Satan in a Jewish synagogue that are opposing you, I'm going to show them that I love you. I'm going to uh, promise to deliver you. Here's a thing you ought to look in verse 10. See, I have to keep moving, but there's somebody who's just got to settle down. Here is a wonderful verse. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you out of 
the hour of trial. It's a little word, ek terao. Ek is our word exit. I will keep you out of the hour of the trial. It has a definite article. And that's not just any hour. It's a definite hour of the definite trial that is about to come upon the whole inhabited world. And that in Revelation is a technical phrase for unsaved. Believers are never said to be earth dwellers. Why? Because our home is in heaven. We're pilgrims down. This word earth is not our true roots. This is not my, I'm just passing through, honey. I am a foreigner in this land. I belong up there. I, my citizenship is in the third heaven, and I don't care what Hillary says this next week. And I don't care what Trump is trying to say. We're desperate at the pole. Man, is this the best we can do. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming upon the whole unsaved world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, there's various views about the tribulation period that's going to be described in chapters 6 through 19. And that tribulation period is a seven-year period. He actually gives the months when you're reading through Revelation. And it's months. And he tells you that seven-year period. There's different views about the church and this tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel's 70th week out of Daniel 9. It's going to be a horrendous time of divine wrath poured out on the earth. Here's the issue. Will the people of God go through a seven-year period in which God is pouring out his wrath on the earth? Now, uh, there are those who say we will go through that period, and they would use the argument if you were a man that, if you followed George Eldon Ladd, Robert Gundry, uh, men that champion or they would say God will preserve us through the period, but we go through it. They're known as post-tribulationists. We go through it. There's a view mid-trib that a, a Jewish man, Marv Rosenthal, he wrote a book, The Pre-Wrath Rapture. And he says the first half of the tribulation is uh, satanic wrath. The second half is divine wrath. So he says, no, we won't ever see divine wrath but we will see satanic wrath. So we go through half of that three-and-a-half-year period. There's others of us that believe the church has been promised exemption from a period of divine wrath, and we see the whole seven-year period as a time of divine wrath. And we do that because Revelation 6, when the sealed judgments are being opened up, he calls it the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb. And it's beginning that period. So we who would say we believe Scripture teaches us exemption, love this verse. Let us uh, just break it out for you. He promises to keep them out of the tribulation, out of, not keep them through it, 
but keep them out of it. And specifically, not just, no Christian is exempt from trials and tribulation. We all have that in general. This is the specific tribulation when God's wrath is judging the earth. And we simply say he will keep us out of the hour. That's the time period. He will keep us out of this particular tribulation. And we are not going to be treated as the other inhabitants of the earth. Because here's another thing. Some say, well, we'll be preserved during that period. Those who enter into tribulation, the 144,000 Jews, the Gentiles who were saved in Revelation 7, they don't just go through it. Many of them are martyred. Many are killed. So they're not exempted from martyrdom during the period. So the saints that do go in to that period, many of them die a martyr's death. So it's not a time you just go into and you're exempt from martyrdom, uh, being killed because you don't take the mark of the beast. Many saints, uh, those who believe during that period, will die and die for their faith. They'll flee. God will hide many of them. But it's going to be a dangerous, dangerous time. But we see this as a promise to this church. I promise you to keep you out of this period of the hour of the tribulation. And it has never happened to you yet, Philadelphia. It's a coming event. And I promise to keep you out of it. I believe, I am a man who believes the church will get out of here before the tribulation because God has said, I've not appointed you to divine wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Revelation 3.10. And so why would God want to expose me to divine wrath now that I'm his? And... Uh, it is a blessed, blessed hope. It seems like those who don't believe this never have prophetic conferences because maybe they're already depressed. Pre-tribulation, the guys have been talking about it for years because no matter how bad things get, we know it's going to get worse. But we got this hope, this hope that Christ is going to show up and deliver us from the ultimate tribulation of the ultimate hour. And no matter how it gets this bad on this side, you've seen nothing yet. It's going to get a thousand times worse than you've ever seen. And I believe the bride of Christ doesn't go through this time. And I hope we're right. <laughs> hey, <laughs> he's counting on it. Uh, let's go on. That's enough to shout about, argue the rest of lunchtime. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Now, do you think he's talking about the physical heat? No, no. It's an analogy of their spiritual condition. Now, let me tell you why they say that. They got water from two sources. Hierapolis, where they had sulfur springs. 
that were boiling hot. And Colossae, above Colossae, the mountains came down, and it was snow water. But when these things came over in aqueducts they built under the Romans, by the time it got to the city, they were usually a nauseating, uh, just think of warm milk. Uh, even coffee. I can't stand coffee if it's not hot. I microwave it. I mean, I put a little cream, and it goes, why does that? Then you blow on it for a minute. <laughs> that makes it coffee. You don't want the, there's some things you know you want it hot or cold. You don't want warm milk as a whole. Peanut butter sandwiches goes with cold milk, right? Okay. So he's using the, now, it wouldn't bother me if you were hot or cold or lukewarm. It doesn't matter. But this is Christ's analysis, analysis of the church. And he says this, an astounding phrase. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm going to ask you this question. Does Christ ever spit out a true believer? Men like John MacArthur believes this church is totally unregenerate. He doesn't think there's anybody here saved. Maybe they're not. You're not hot. You're not cold. You think the Bible's true? just don't want to be saved, or I don't take it serious. I'm a middler. I'm in the middle. Something. We've got to qualify. It's hard to know what does the hot stand for. Is that the on fire? It's hard for him to say, well, I wish you were maybe cold. I don't want you to be hot. It's a tough verse for me. What does it actually mean? Whatever it is, there's some folks' spiritual temperature that makes Christ sick enough to throw them up. Did I write this? Is it your Bible? So if I said, you're making Christ sick, would that be a biblical way? Now, the issue for me, do I know that about you? That's a bold, ascertain, to ascertain that bold. But Christ says, Laodicea. Now, what's amazing about Laodicea, it was a commercial center. It was a wool and product center. And they sold a medicine there called Figrin. It was made from Figrin powder, P-H-R-G-I-A-N, Figrin powder. They sold it for ISAV. Now, they've done, they've studied the clay from which it was made in modern times and said there was no healing value, but they made a lot of money off of it. You don't think there's any product on the market today that don't do what they say, do you? Well, uh, it was that way. It was famous for its ISAB, for its garment industry, for banking. Now, look what he says to them. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Sound like they were prosperous, booming, self-satisfied, and they were obviously self-deceived. Then he says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, how can you be such opposite in the diagnosis? I mean, 
could you say this to Christ? I'm, I'm okay. And he said, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're wretched. You're pitiful. You're blind. You can't see. You're naked. Oh, Lord, I mean, don't shock my modesty. Before me, you are like Adam and Eve without the covering of the fig leaves. You've sinned, you're guilty, and you're naked. You can't cover it with your fine clothing industry. You can't find anything at sacks that can cover you in my eyes. You're naked. You're stripped. You're exposed. You're paupers. You're a wretched bunch. I'm going to throw you up. You make me sick, and yet you're having church in my name. I counter you. Buy from me gold refined by fire, which I would understand. Come to me for treasures. Come to me for the richness you can find in God. Quit counting the money you got in the bank. Quit counting on your prosperous city. Quit counting on all your retirement funds. And I'm a fat cat American. I don't need anything. I don't need God. You only need God and I see you when you're ready to die. And he said, you need to wake up. Your money won't buy you eternal life. Your money will not impress God. You're a pauper in this sight until you hold the treasure of treasures, Jesus Christ. You remember the rich man who said, I have no time for God. I'll build bigger barns. I'm going to uh, uh, prosper. Things are going good. And that night the Lord called on him and said, Tonight I'm going to take your life from you. Who will the barns belong to? Where will your money be? In, just, in the coffin, you won't be able to take much with you. Or if you're like King Tut, we'll bury your monkey, we'll bury your wife, and we'll bury all the gold that Egypt can put in your tomb. But the grave robbers will rob it, and it will never reach the other city. You need to get the true treasures. I've been around people dirt poor in this world, so rich in God. I saw an interview years ago of a black man in Mississippi. His people had been uh, sharecroppers. Descendants come all the way down from the Civil War. This was in the 50s. He was in a shanty of a house, and they were doing an interview on black people who had survived and stayed in the South. And things were shabby, no indoor plumbing, no shower. You could tell he'd worked hard all of his life, sitting there in a pair of bib overalls. And as they interviewed him, finally he said, I know you think I'm nothing but a poor man, but I'm rich in God. Can that be true? Can you be a child of the king going to heaven, living on a shanty and a sharecropper's son down in Mississippi? You better believe it. God's not impressed with Silicon Valley. Make all your money, drive all your sport cars you want. You can go to hell faster and quicker and easier, but you're still poor towards God. You need a Savior. Church, don't ever think buildings means we're rich. We're just blessed. But this is not our true resources. Our true resources are above Him. He's the one that saves. He's the one that makes you rich. 
You need to get true gold. You need to get a white garment from me. Let me clothe you in my righteousness and cover your nakedness. And your eyes that you can't see, all you can see is money, dollars. Oh, you're an American. Money, money is your God. Money's everything. He said, I need to anoint your eyes to see who I am. I am king of kings. I've made everything. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I think so little of gold, I'm paving my streets in heaven with it. We walk on this stuff. We don't bank it. We walk on it. You need me. I'm the treasure. If you don't have me, you're a poor boy, poor for eternity. The rich man in hell lifted up his eyes. And then Abraham said, Who's being comforted now? This poor beggar that you never helped, who is probably dying of leprosy. You never helped him one time, Mr. Rich Man. He's being comforted in paradise in the bosom of God. You know what? I don't mind being poor down here for a few years, and I'm not compared to my people. Don't feel sorry. My people were the poor ones. But, oh, just think of being poor for 70 years and rich for all eternity. Versus a man that had the big bucks for a little while and all eternity begs just for a drop of water. You better get your eyes healed and know what really has value. He says to them, you need to get zeal and repentance. And number two, I forgot his complaint. You have no zeal, verse 19. You haven't repented. And then in their being self-deceived, uh, be zealous for God. That word means to boil, verse 19. Do you have any boil for God? And repent or get right with God. By the way, let me say to the church, repentance is a lifelong practice. You don't just repent to get saved. We ought to be repenting daily, every day, just like we confess sin. And do you ever change your mind and change your ways as you're going along? You better, if not, get married. And if you stay married, you're going to learn to repent. You're going to learn to pick up your socks. And you're going to learn to be sweet with her. Or don't, don't be expecting fireworks at night, honey. It's going to be fire, all right, but it won't be fireworks. You're going to repent on how you treat that person. You're going to make a lot of adjustments. Nothing will mature you or ruin you quicker than being married. Because you see the mirror of yourself, how selfish we can be, how ingrown our habits are. But if you really want to win the heart and the chemistry of that person, you learn to change. And I get a witness. All married people, just raise your hand, half mass, half mass, yeah. Now, change. And it's the same with our relationship with God. It's a lifelong change. He says to them at the end, I'm at the door knocking. What is the door? Of course, it's been used for years as evangelism and at heart's door. He's knocking at the door of a church too. He's preaching a revival at a Southern Baptist church in Houston. Confusion was going on in that church. And we came to this verse. I said, 
Can Christ get into this church? Can Christ run this church? Can Christ get into your board meeting? I used to have a man named George Rutenbar preach here. George was the assistant to Dr. John Walford at Dallas. He'd been an insurance man. He, he, fought, he was a pilot in World War II, played for the White Sox. Never got to play much because he's right behind Cepeda. He owned his own insurance brokerage in Nashville. Had six kids, two Cadillacs, a butler and a maid when he decided to go to a seminary. He's wealthy. Go-go kind of a guy. Finally, he was hired to work with the school. I asked him, George, what was the difference working with Dr. Walvert and going to insurance corporate meetings? He said, the first time I went to a board meeting at Dallas and the Dutchman, as we called Dr. Walvert, said, man, let's all get on our knees and commit this budget need to the Lord. He said, when I found myself on my knees in a room full of men praying, I said, oh, what a difference from a corporate meeting for an insurance company and doing business for God. You mean you actually go to your knees? I asked myself, Jesus, are you on the inside of this church or are you trying to get in? Could I be the chairman of the board in this church? We think we know how to have church. We don't know anything. And it's the same with your own heart. If you've ever seen the famous picture by uh, Holman Hunt, Christ, the light of the world, standing at the door with the light, someone noticed that in that famous picture, an English artist, Christ is standing at the light or, or at the door with this lantern and he's knocking and one of the critics of art noticed and he notified him. He said, there's something wrong with your picture. And he said, and what is that? He said, there's no handle on the door. No handle. He said, ah, there's a reason. It's locked on the inside. The lock is on the inside. Only the occupant of the house can open the door. You see, God never forces himself on us. He knocks. He's waiting for you to open the door. He will not knock the door down. He won't make a force entry. He's waiting for the church. He's waiting for the believer. Do you want him? And he said, if you'll let me in, you know what he does? I'll share my lunch with you. I'll share an evening meal with you, which in biblical times was the meal of friendship. If you'll let me in, if you'll let me run Valley Bible, I'll give you a, a feast, and I'll bring the food. You bring the appetite. Which one are you? Have you lost your first love? Are you 
suffering Christian at this time? Are you Pergamos and you're putting up with Nicolaitans and Balaam? Are you Thyatira putting up with a loose moral woman called Jezebel seducing God's servants? Maybe you're Sardis. You've been around those with a great reputation, but you didn't see great reality. Maybe we're Philadelphia. That was the promise God gave me. I was always hoping we would be. Maybe we're lukewarm. I must say this. I don't feel much heat in most places I go. Everything's tame. Everything's calm. You only yell and scream at a ball game, but you don't get carried away in church. You'd do good to raise your hand. Some of you'd break your arm to raise your hand because you've been taught to be stiff. Well, you didn't learn it from God. You learned it from your pastors. They taught you to stare and be critics of every word said. What happened? What happened to the church? Where's the enthusiasm? Where's the fire? Where's the zeal? Where's the burn for prayer, for evangelism, for giving, for service? Where is it in your life? You're one of these seven. You're one of them, and so am I. Because I'm over time, I must let you go. God bless you.